Welcome back to the Major Journey Podcast. Today's special guest is back for a second episode to talk about his new ebook, Secrets to Maximizing Profits in the Cannabis Industry, Contemporary and Pragmatic Tips for Improving Your Cultivation Business. As master grower from 2013 to 2016, today's guest has directed cultivation for Tweed, Canada's largest licensed producer of legal cannabis, and the flagship subsidiary of Canopy Growth Corporation. So without further ado, Ryan Douglas, welcome back to the show. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. It's great to speak with you again. Yeah, likewise. We had a great conversation last time. And so I'm excited just to see, you know, what's new, what's been happening since we last spoke about a year, year and a half ago. Um, and maybe maybe for the folks that are just tuning into our conversations for the first time here, if you can maybe give a little bit of a backstory as to, you know, how you actually ended up working with Tweed um, and Canopy in the uh, in the capacity that you were, I think that'd be a great place to to start. Yeah, of course. So I was hired by Tweed in uh, the summer of 2013. So at that time, uh, they weren't even licensed. They were one of wow. the uh, first companies to get licensed in Canada. But uh, the founders put together a team, we submitted the license, and uh, Tweed eventually became licensed and turned into Canopy Growth Corporation. So I really directed cultivation for that company, helped them launch and expand production for the first three years. Uh, but prior to that, my background in training is actually is in traditional horticulture. So before even touching cannabis, I was growing ornamental crops and hydroponic vegetable crops in commercial greenhouses across the U.S. for 15 years. So I really learned um, how to grow plants commercially, hands-on, which I think is really the best education out there. And um, in retrospect, it was probably the best way to learn how to grow cannabis commercially because if you're new to the industry, there's a lot of crazy stuff out there, a lot of equipment and technology and philosophies, and everyone has a different opinion. But if you kind of come at it, having grown more traditional crops, then you realize that this is just a plant. It's a very special and unique plant, but when it all comes down to it, it's just a plant. So that's the best train I could have asked for, but that's how I wound up uh, commercially cultivating cannabis. And now for the last five years or so, I've worked as an independent cultivation consultant, helping cannabis companies to run more profitable cultivation sites. That's awesome. And yeah, that philosophy that you kind of just uh, touched on a little bit right there, as far as you don't necessarily need all of the quote unquote fanciest and flashiest equipment and technology. You just need to have a good structured process for going about it. Um, which is something I want to, I want to talk about because I saw something very cool in the book, or at least I thought it was pretty cool uh, in your latest ebook that I want to ask you about. Uh, but, but before I I get to selfishly ask those questions. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your new ebook and what it's all about and really what sparked the idea for it? And another question to, to piggyback on that, you know, were the ideas that came for the book, did they come from current pain points that maybe you've been seeing in the market today from a cultivation side? Absolutely. So I'll answer all, <laughs> all of those questions with pleasure. Uh, so the reason I wrote this ebook is that uh, the first book that I published was called Seed to Success. And it was all about how to launch a legal cannabis cultivation startup. Mm -hmm. um, and so then uh, the natural next progression is once you've started up, how does a company maintain uh, mm. profitability? How can they stay successful in an industry that's quasi legal? and kind of has an uncertain future. And so um, initially, years ago, one of the biggest challenges was helping groups that weren't from cannabis 
to launch a facility in a straightforward and efficient manner. So they actually came to market, which in itself is a pretty big challenge. But now once companies enter the market, you have increased competition, you have price fluctuations, you have uh, supply chain issues. Uh, now the question is how do we remain competitive and profitable? And so I decided to put out a, an ebook, uh, Maximize Secrets to Maximizing Profits in the Cannabis Industry, uh, because it's um, kind of a, a much more direct, uh, succinct path to get the information to the reader. So my first book was about 285 pages. Uh, this ebook is probably about 30. Wow. And so to, to answer your last question, yes, it has come out of my work with um, uh, cannabis groups internationally, uh, because just like the startup phase, regardless of the regulations or the country or the language or the culture, um, the, the steps for launching um, a successful cultivation site are generally the same. And now once you've come to market and you're operating, a lot of those challenges are similar, uh, regardless where you are in the world. And so that's kind of based on a lot of feedback I get from clients and from potential clients, um, just addressing the challenges that they have on a day-to-day -day basis. How do they make their business work? That's interesting. So, so now it's almost like, okay, everybody's started up these cultivation facilities and it, from, from, it's, it sounds like what you're saying is now the challenge is, okay, we've started it, we've got it up and running, but how do we actually maintain profitability as we continue to, to keep this operation going. Exactly. So if you think um, years ago, uh, if you consider maybe the very first states in the U.S. to legalize cannabis for medicinal use, um, just because it was so novel and there was so little competition, uh, you could grow this crop inefficiently and still make a lot of money, still be profitable and still run a functioning business. Mm -hmm. Now in states with mature markets, uh, it's much more difficult. You have increased competition, you have increased prices uh, and just the playing field is much more crowded. So yes, we still have states in the US that have yet to legalize cannabis, uh, a few for medicinal use, a lot for recreational use, but you also have countries that have yet to legalize cannabis. And I think that's, that's the way the world is heading. The momentum is there. So we'll still have startup challenges, but um, I think with increased competition, um, things get a little bit tighter. And so now groups are looking for ways to not only survive, but thrive in the face of increased competition in kind of an unknown future for the industry. Yeah. And like, have you, I'm, cu I'm curious if, if there's like a, if there's almost like a common denominator uh, among a lot of these different cultivation facilities, do you find that there is, you know, generally eight times out of 10, this particular problem that is impeding uh, cultivators from achieving profitability or remaining profitable? And I know it's tough to say because not every single cultivation site is necessarily cookie cutter, but just curious, is, is there typically that one common denominator that's impeding their profitability? Absolutely. So typically there's about three. And uh, throughout the years of running a cultivation site myself and now having worked with groups internationally that are running cultivation sites, typically their issues boil down to one of three points. Uh, that's either the genetics, the grower, or the greenhouse. Mm. And so just uh, really quickly, uh, what that means is that by selecting the wrong kind of genetics, they're either growing something that consumers aren't going to buy or they're growing something that's difficult to manage on a commercial scale. Mm. 
So uh, if you've got the wrong kind of genetics or you've got too many genetics, sometimes groups overcomplicate their own business by just trying to do too much at the same time. The second point is the grower. So oftentimes hiring a competent head grower is sometimes a second thought, or there's such a high turnover of growers that there's really no solid leadership for the cultivation program. And so even if the genetics are on point, uh, if you don't have any kind of leadership at the helm of your cultivation program, then naturally uh, you're just asking for problems. And the third point is the greenhouse or kind of the uh, growing facility. So if there's a facility that can't hold the ideal parameters for plant growth, that crop is going to be more susceptible to disease, uh, insect infestations, and uh, poor production results. So the grower I'm sorry, the genetics, the grower, and the greenhouse are really kind of the three fundamental points for companies that are looking to start up. They really need to put their money and their focus on those three areas. And ironically, a lot of existing operators that are having problems, just like you asked, Mm -hmm. typically nine times out of 10, when you start troubleshooting and working back to the true root of the problem, it's based, it comes down to either the genetics, uh, the grower, or the production facility. Fascinating. Because I, I remember I was going through the book and you mentioned how a lot of growers now in the current market, market conditions are having a tough time achieving profitability if their sole focus is growing for CBD because it's just been so commoditized and the prices have just been so significantly pushed down. There was a time where you could grow for CBD purposes and you could be profitable and very profitable at that, but trends come and go. And so do you see a lot of growers sort of struggle with trying to catch trends? Because it's almost, I I almost feel like now a lot of the conversations around the flowers that consumers are purchasing stem between people want bang for their buck. And so they go to dispensaries and say, okay, what's the highest percentage THC flower that I can get for X amount of dollars, and then they go and reach for that. And so cultivators might be thinking, okay, that's where we, that's where we need to shift and focus our attention. And then there's, a, there's another conversation happening simultaneously where a lot of consumers are starting to, to say to themselves, well, you know what? It's maybe not necessarily that I want the most THC to have a, the best experience or the ideal experience. I want to have a certain profile of terpenes in some of my flower. And so the industry is still fairly nascent. And I think as more and more developments come out, there's going to be trends that go this way, that way, and then new discoveries happen. And so what do you say to, to cultivators that are just kind of stuck at a crossroads and they're not necessarily sure, you know, where do we put our time, energy, and resources to, to maximize um, our investment into the right genetics or which trend to follow? Yeah, that's a great point. So I wouldn't look at it so much as a trend but as growing uh, varieties that speak to very specific segments of the consumer population. And so you're always going to have um, consumers that go into a dispensary and simply look for the highest THC product. One, you're right, because uh, from an efficiency standpoint, uh, you're purchasing less and it's stronger so at the end of the day, uh, it's a little bit more efficient than purchasing something with low THC and you're just uh, you, you need to purchase more volume to get the same effect. So you'll always have folks that are looking for high THC. Uh, you'll always have consumers more like connoisseurs that are that mm-hmm. 
realize that THC influences the overall effect to some point, but they're much more interested in the the aroma and the taste of the flower and they realize, or they kind of subscribe to the belief that there is an entourage effect where THC is a small part, but there's a much bigger part that's much more complex that we're still learning about. Uh, but then at the same time, you're gonna have um, either new customers or customers from an older generation that aren't looking for 35% THC that are happy with maybe a 5% uh, THC or like a one-to-one -one ratio. So I wouldn't say that we should write off CBD altogether, but mm. I certainly wouldn't put hundred percent of a company's production efforts into high CBD. But I think there's a demand for one-to-one -one ratio. And I can, I can tell you from experience that uh, I've grown and consumed cannabis that had a very low THC with a moderate to high level of CBD. And the effect was very similar to as if you had consumed a very high THC variety. So I totally understand uh, and I recognize the demand, but instead of chasing uh, trends, what I would suggest is that companies really offer kind of maybe four or five different classes of cannabis. So one is the super high THC, you know, one is going to be more of a, an equal ratio THC to CBD, maybe another low THC, and then kind of concentrate on the terpenes or something unique. And so there's so many varieties out there that it's not a problem to switch out uh, cultivars as your business matures. But instead of thinking about trends, I would, I, I would recommend that companies think about just trying to um, meet demand in certain segments because mm -hmm. uh, it's always going to be there. And you're right. A lot of customers uh, just go into a dispensary and look for the highest THC. And it doesn't matter if you and I believe that the entourage effect plays a big role in that or that THC is not the only thing that is important when we're consuming cannabis. What's important is that if we run a business, we want to give people what they want, mm -hmm. right? So as growers, if we're growers and selling wholesale to dispensaries, let's, let's grow a number of different varieties, but they all kind of fall into four or five different segments. And I don't think those kind of um, consumer tastes are going to change when it comes to smokable flour in the near future. Yeah, it, it almost sounds to me like there's there's some synergy or some parallel between the beverage industry and cannabis in that sense, where there's always going to be a pocket of the market for, you know, craft, craft beer or, or, you know, liquor that might be a little bit more top shelf and, or, or wine that might be a little bit more tailored for the connoisseur. And then there's also going to be the beer that you can get, you know, at value. Okay. How, you know, if I spend 10 bucks, can I get a 30 pack of X, Y, Z? Um, so to your point, it, when you were describing all of that, that's what it kind of sounded like to me. And is that, do you think that there is kind of like a mirror image of that happening in cannabis and it's going to kind of remain that way? Exactly. And think about the most successful um, uh, liquor or spirit stores that you've been in. They cater to all of those markets. So they've got the 30 pack of cores for $10, mm -hmm. but they also have a six pack of, locally crafted beer and you don't want to try to convince i mean you're more than welcome to attempt to educate consumers but if somebody comes in they've got five minutes and they've got ten dollars they need a 30 pack of cores like they bought last weekend if you try to can well have you considered this this kind of crafty real hoppy ipa it's got you know eight percent alcohol you might want to try it they're going to leave and they're going to go to the convenience store in the corner that's going to sell them a 30 pack of cores without giving them an issue so we want to be able to provide those folks with the beer they want and provide people like me with kind of a different 
kind of craft beer. And so that's mm -hmm. the same philosophy we should have when we're talking about stocking or selling to dispensaries. We need to give the people what they want, uh, but likely it falls into just a, a handful of a few categories when we talk about dried flour. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I'm curious, have you seen, um, like having worked with so many different cultivators, have you seen um, any particular strains recently that have maybe just been consistently popping up in different grow rooms where you might say to yourself, oh, wow, that must be a fan favorite because a lot of folks are you know, catering to that, that want. So, so here's the thing is that there's so many varieties out there and there's nothing stopping growers from changing the name of a variety mid crop, just because it's the hottest trend on the market at the moment. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, even if someone has a certain variety in California, it's very unlikely that someone growing in Maine selling a product by that same name is the same thing. And so there's really no consistency there. And it really comes down to almost uh, product by product or grower by grower. So, you know, you could have wedding cake or divorce cake be really popular. And then you've got people that are still into the OG Kush from years ago. And then tomorrow there's going to be a different variety with a different name that's going to get a lot of attention. Then people will be after, will be after that. But what I tell uh, companies when they ask me, how should they select genetics that are going to stand out in a crowd? or help them be competitive to their neighbor. I tell folks not to chase the name, but really concentrate on the characteristics of that flower. Mm -hmm. So if you think about what's gonna be in demand over the next few years in most recreational cannabis markets in the US, it's gonna be that double whammy, high THC and a rich, unique mix of terpenes. And so instead of going after a certain name, if you can either breed or purchase or just by chance acquire, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. a variety that has those two characteristics, uh, you've got a good likelihood that it's going to sell. If it grows well on a commercial scale, if it's dried correctly, if it's manicured and trimmed, so visually it's attractive. Mm -hmm. If the lab tests come back and say that it has moderate to high THC, and by high THC, uh, we're talking anything 20% and above. And if it has a rich, unique mix of terpenes, you know, two, 3% is ideal. The closer we get to five, that's a really flavorful flavorful cannabis. So it's kind of a long answer to say, I don't chase names because they're changing all the time. And I know that uh, sometimes growers change the name of the cultivar they are growing because they know it's going to be popular once it's harvested. And we don't have the technology or the, the, the tracing ability yet to be able to go back and identify and verify for sure that this is exactly what the grower claims that they're growing and selling. We really don't know. It all comes down to mm -hmm. uh, the consumption, in my opinion. Yeah. And so there's, so that, that's a great point. And one, one thought that just came to mind was, so we have, we have brands like cookies where essentially, you know, that if you're picking up a particular strain from them it's in their branded packaging you know that what you're getting is essentially what you're getting whether it's in california or massachusetts now how how do you think that it's going to play out in terms of the similarities that we see in the beverage industry where you know if i'm in maine and i go to a, a convenience store and i pick up a 30 pack of cores or if i go to california and pick up a 30 pack of cores or in new york it's the same product. And so I know that this particular um, variety of beer is this particular variety of beer. 
with interstate commerce being a big obstacle for us in cannabis, do you kind of see that being a big challenge for us to be able to have, let's say, a wedding cake in Maine, in Michigan, in California, and New York be that same wedding cake? Or do you think that there is a way to kind of go about that and create that consistency in products and, and names and strains across the board? No, that's a critical point. I mean, that's the billion dollar question. Uh, and a lot of MSOs, if they're not concerned, they should be about how they can guarantee consistency across the country. And so in my opinion, I don't think they can. Even if you have a certain variety, a certain cultivar, a cutting that's mm -hmm. grown in California, and you somehow manage to get it to Maine, I guarantee you that the result is not going to be similar because the expression, the creation of these terpenes, it's so... Um, it's so delicate that slight differences in temperature or watering frequency or light intensity are going to change the, the expression of mm -hmm. these genetics. And so even though it has the same name, it's very likely that the lab results from uh, the test results from the lab are going to be different for these two different states. So short of interstate transport, uh, the only way that I think MSOs can guarantee consistency is to not grow varieties in different states. So here would be an example. We'll see even that's short of short of um, allowing interstate transport, I think it's going to be tricky. So what you've got is, in my opinion, in the near future, you're going to have a lot of companies once they can ship interstate is set up shop in larger facilities in areas of the country where it's more conducive to growing. So if you think California and the Southwest US, so less expensive to grow, they'll grow a certain variety and they'll ship it across the US. But short of that, I think, I think you have to grow separate varieties in different states. So for example, in California, let's say a company grows OG Kush. Mm -hmm. In Maine, uh, they grow blueberry muffins. And then they ship from those states across the country. So that way you can guarantee that a certain company's, a certain MSO's blueberry muffin is gonna be exactly the same in Michigan and California and New Mexico because it's all grown in the same place, but it's shipped from there. But if you're mm -hmm. exchanging these cultivars between states and between growers, you've got a lot of different um, growing methods, different equipment, different technology. Every single one of these facilities is different. Even if you have a very strict cultivation protocols, uh, there's so much variability that I, you, can't, you can't guarantee consistency. So it's a, it's a challenge that no other uh, consumer packaged good industry faces. And that's, that's the biggest obstacle to branding because branding is essentially a, a uniform statement of quality. And how can you do that when, when all the product is coming out slightly different? It's an excellent question, um, but there's no easy answer. Yeah. And you can... I would assume that, you know, there's a certain degree to your point, there's a certain degree that you can control, especially if it's in an indoor grow facility, but especially once you go into flower that maybe, you know, is specifically designed or just happens to bring out its best characteristics when it's grown outdoors under the natural sun and a specific type of soil, to your point, that's going to be extremely hard to replicate and duplicate and scale in different states throughout the country because of different atmospheric pressures, soil consistencies, and, and all of these different things that are just kind of out of our control. We can have the same genetics, but 
I didn't even think about this before you brought it up. How are they going to be expressed and to what degree are they going to be expressed under different conditions that are just simply out of our control? It's a great point. And at the end of the day, it's true. It's unless there is some form of interstate commerce, it's going to be pretty darn near impossible to, to guarantee that quality and say that, okay, if it's in this bag and it has this logo on it, it's going to be the same exact product every single time. No, I totally agree. And I mean, this is all I, all I do. This is all I think about. <laughs> and I think it's a tremendous challenge. It's unique to our industry for sure. Yeah. Um, and so right, another thing I wanted to, to bring up was that um, when you first opened up the ebook, you shared with everybody the cultivation team organizational chart. And I thought that was a great way to open up the book. Um, can you just break that down for us? Because to me, as somebody who has very little to no experience in cultivation, it seemed like it was very structured, very simple, and very methodical in keeping things simple, efficient, and not overcomplicating the process and not investing more resources than is necessary. So can you just kind of break down the concept behind that and how you were able to derive such simplicity to create long-term profitability? Build, uh, success and profitability for, for cultivators that are looking to kind of structure their operations. Yeah. So that was one topic that I, uh, I duplicated to some sense from my original book, but made it much more succinct and direct because again, uh, starting out with a lean uh, cultivation team is critical to the success of a startup, mm -hmm. but also uh, for companies that are struggling, it's a good place to start to examine. Since I mentioned that the head grower is one of those three key factors that typically cause uh, a company to go off the rails. And so naturally, um, the, the cultivation team is going to look different if it's a small 5,000 square foot craft grower or 100,000 square foot uh, site of an MSO that has multiple sites. So uh, it was just kind of trying to pull an average. But the key here uh, in my experience is that is that the company spends as much money as they can to hire the best grower that they can afford, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So we start there because not everyone on the cultivation team needs experience growing cannabis. And in my experience, it's actually better if not everyone does. Mm. So, um, so the person we want to make sure has experience with plants certainly is the head grower. And uh, a section grower or assistant grower under that person should be experienced as well. But everyone else kind of down, um, down the organizational chart, basically plant technici technicians or production assistants, uh, in my experience, I found it's like a, a blank slate. So if, if these folks are passionate about working, if they want to kind of uh, start a job in a new line of work, You've got a blank slate right there. Uh, they're ready to learn and you can uh, teach these folks, look, this is how we prune the plant. We take off these leaves, we cut it like this. Uh, you work with someone for a little while, then you leave them alone, come back a little bit later, make some adjustments. And then pretty soon you leave them there for a day. Pretty soon uh, they're just doing it on a weekly basis and you don't really need to worry about that. That's ideal. But when you hire a lot of production assistants or uh, plant technicians that have grown on their own, a lot of people come with very passionate opinions about how things should be done. And you're always kind of bumping heads. There's always pushback. And it's not just the challenge isn't just executing the production plan on schedule. It's now kind of convincing and debating, which absolutely is crucial. But it, it uh, if it's not organized, then it can really drag down the efficiency of production. 
So maybe you have, I think the suggestion boxes are kind of cheesy, but maybe you have weekly production meetings with the team and that's in uh, uh, an appropriate moment to bring up some questions, to start a debate, mm -hmm. to maybe introduce some different perspectives that the head grower hasn't considered. But uh, otherwise, what I found is a lot of tension day-to-day. -day, uh, people either want to argue about the production uh, method or sometimes will flat out not do it. Or the worst is sabotage by doing what they want to do anyway. So the head grower should be experienced uh, on a commercial scale, be experienced certainly with people management, facility management, production planning. The assistant grower under that person also should have a background in horticulture. But then below them, really, uh, you can rely on the local labor, labor force in order to fill those, to fill those holes. Mm -hmm. Above the head grower, um, my... Uh, biggest suggestion is not to really layer on too much management above the head grower uh, mm -hmm. because I've seen that with groups that I've worked with. Uh, they bring in a lot of operations managers on top of the head grower and eventually there's no point in even hiring a head grower because all of these managers on top of that person are really kind of pulling the strings and making the decisions. So <clears throat> it's important to start up with a lean team for brand new businesses but also if you find that um, either production is lagging or things are getting really inefficient, I would first on the growth. So it might be time to either bring someone on to retrain or teach that person certain skills, or it might be time to replace them completely. And the latter option may seem more extreme, but at the end of the day, it might be uh, a more efficient method when it comes to guaranteeing the, the competitiveness and profitability of the business. So just as a quick example, a lot of head growers have marijuana experience, a lot of experience with the plant, but not so much mm -hmm. with managing people. And if you hire for plant experience, you know, half of a grower's workday really has nothing to do with growing plants. And so oftentimes when these companies really try to dial in and focus on how can we become more efficient? How can we basically lower our cost of production? A lot of that has to do with managing the team and organizing how these folks move about in a day-to-day -day manner. But if you're just focused on kind of genetics or you're just focused on, I'm not sure, some part of really the, the, the cannabis experience and not so much on kind of the more monotonous day-to-day -day organization of the team, that's where a lot of money can, can be lost. Um, if you think about just like in how a trim team is set up, if employees spend a lot of time getting new plants or dumping leaves or cleaning scissors or looking for a tray, you know, half of their day can be spent running around getting stuff or cleaning up or preparing. And it might be possible to re-engineer their process so people stay in place a little bit longer. They work a little bit more efficiently or a little bit more quickly. And at the end of the week, at the end of the month, certainly at the end of the year, those saved hours can really translate into a much more attractive bottom line for the business. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And so for anybody who's in cultivation, I strongly recommend you get, um, you pick up Brian's latest ebook, Secrets to, to Maximizing Profits in the Cannabis Industry. Ryan, where can people go and, and grab a copy for themselves? So Amazon uh, is certainly one option. Ironically, I had it for sale on my uh, website, which customers could pay through uh, PayPal in order to get it. But PayPal closed my account uh, once they discovered I'm in the cannabis business. So for right now, Amazon is the only option. Okay, cool. 
<laughs> and uh, yeah, I just, I'm shaking my head right now because you're one of so many people that are having challenges with PayPal and it's so frustrating that this is even still a topic of conversation. But you also contribute to Cannabis Business Executive, correct? Yes, I write articles for that publication every two weeks. Awesome, cool. And I'm guessing probably around this, like very similar topics, right? Profitability and the business behind a cultivation facility. Exactly. Not so much technical in terms of growing, but more uh, business insights and tips for owners and operators, CEOs of licensed cultivation businesses. Perfect. Yeah. So folks, if you're, if you're tuning in and you're interested in, in more content from Ryan, be sure to check him out at Cannabis Business Executive um, and go, go grab the ebook. It'll, it'll definitely pay, pay dividends. So Ryan, thanks again for joining us today. I really appreciate your time, your insight um, and schooling me. To, to the ins and outs of this game. I really appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. Anyone that uh, is interested in talking cultivation, please reach out to me at my website, douglascultivation.com. Awesome. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week's episode of the Major Journey Podcast. We will catch you all next time. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has can of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network. Network.